Let us pray. Almighty God, whose blessed apostles Peter and Paul glorified thee by their martyrdom, grant that thy church, instructed by their teaching and example, and knit together in unity by thy Spirit, may ever stand firm upon the one foundation, which is Jesus Christ our Lord, who liveth and reigneth with thee in the unity of the same Spirit, one God, forever and ever. Amen. Ben, why don't you just take that down a little bit. Keep going, keep going. Can you hear me now? Okay, very good. That's great. Thank you. Well, welcome. Uh, we are coming down the home stretch. In fact, this is the home stretch. Um, we are beginning Acts chapter 27 today, and we are going to finish Acts chapter 27 and Acts chapter 28. Um, this is the end of the book of Acts, and for all intents and purposes, it's the end of our study on the book of Acts. Today, believe it or not, is our last class uh, until we resume in the fall with a new Bible study. And the reason for that is um, normally we would have one more class and I would be able to get in one more lecture, um, but the reality is I've got a son graduating from college and um, I'm going to Pennsylvania next week and the baccalaureate is on Friday and the graduation is on Saturday and I've got another son who's signing a contract for officer candidate school with the Marine Corps this, on Friday morning. So I've got to be there Friday morning, and it's a long drive with little kids to Pennsylvania. So we are leaving probably on Thursday morning. So that will mean that we will not have a class that week. And then the following week, of course, uh, all of our Bible studies and classes come to an end. So this is it, folks. Um, but um, hopefully you'll be able to say that after two years on the book of Acts, if you've never done any kind of a systematic study of any particular book of the Bible, you've at least studied uh, the book of Acts. And uh, then when the fall comes around, God willing, we're all here, we will go ahead and we will resume with a new study. And what that will be, well, when you come back in the fall, you'll find out. Um, because over the summer, I'll be deciding what it's going to be. And, uh, but we'll be looking at another book of the Bible for sure. So let's just jump right in today because we've got a lot of ground to cover and not as much time as I would like. We're going to go ahead and read through the entire chapter 27 of the book of Acts, and then probably when we finish that, just read through the first part of Acts chapter 28 down to verse 16. And then um, we'll talk in great detail about all of this, but you'll have to finish the last part of chapter 28 on your own, but I trust that you'll be able to do it. So Acts chapter 27. And when it was decided that we should sail for Italy, they delivered Paul and some other prisoners through a centurion of the Augustan cohort named Julius. And embarking in the ship at Adramidium, which was about to sail to the ports along the coast of Asia, we put to sea, accompanied by Aristarchus, a Macedonian from Thessalonica. The next day we put in at Sidon, and Julius treated Paul kindly and gave him leave to go to his friends and be cared for. And putting out to sea, from there we sailed under the lee of Cyprus, because the winds were against us. And when we had sailed across the open sea along the coast of Cilicia and Pamphylia, we came to Myra and Lycia. There the centurion found a ship of Alexandria sailing for Italy and put us on board. We sailed slowly for a number of days and arrived with difficulty at Sinindus. 
And as the wind did not allow us to go further, we sailed under the lee of Crete off Salamone. Coasting along with great difficulty, we came to a place called Fair Havens, near which was the city of Lycia. Since much time had passed and the voyage was now dangerous because even the fast was already over, Paul advised them, saying, Sirs, I perceive that the voyage will be with injury and much loss, not only of the cargo and the ship, but also of our lives. But the centurion paid more attention to the pilot and to the owner of the ship than to what Paul said. And because the harbor was not suitable to spend the winter in, the majority decided to put out to sea from there, on the chance that somehow they could reach Phoenix, a harbor of Crete, facing both southwest and northwest, and spend the winter there. Now, when the south wind blew gently, supposing that they had obtained their purpose, they weighed anchor and sailed along Crete close to the shore. But soon a tempestuous wind called a northeaster struck down from the land. And when the ship was caught and could not face the wind, we gave way to it and were driven along, running under the lee of a small island called Cauda. We managed with great difficulty to secure the ship's boast, boat. After hoisting it up, they used supports to undergird the ship. Then, fearing that they would run aground at... All these names are interesting, aren't they? Sirtis, they lowered the gear, and thus they were driven along. Since we were violently storm-tossed, they began the next day to jettison the cargo. And on the third day, they threw the ship's tackle overboard with their own hands. And when neither sun nor stars appeared for many days, and no small tempest lay on us, all hope of our being saved was at last abandoned. Since they had been without food for a long time, Paul stood among them and said, Men, you should have listened to me. That's always what you want to hear in the midst of a storm. I hate to say I told you so, but... But men, since you have not listened to me and have not set sail from Crete and incurred this injury and loss, yet now I urge you to take heart. For there will be no loss of life among you, but only of the ship. For this very night there stood before me an angel of the God to whom I belong and whom I worship. And he said, Do not be afraid, Paul. You must stand before Caesar. And behold, God has granted you all those who sail with you. So take heart, men, for I have faith in God that will be exactly as I have told you. But we must run aground on some island. When the fourteenth night had come, as we were being driven across the Adriatic Sea, about midnight, the sailors suspected that they were nearing land. So they took a sounding and found 20 fathoms. A little farther on, they took a sounding again and found 15 fathoms. And fearing that we might run on the rocks, they let down four anchors from the stern and prayed for day to come. And as the sailors were seeking to escape from the ship and had lowered the ship's boat into the sea under the pretense of laying out anchors from the bow, Paul said to the centurion and the soldiers, Unless these men stay in the ship, you cannot be saved. Then the soldiers cut away the ropes of the ship's boat and let it go. As day was about to dawn, Paul urged them all to take food, saying, Today is the fourteenth day that you have continued in suspense and without food, having taken nothing. Therefore I urge you to take some food, for it will give you strength, for not a hair is to perish from the head of any of you. And when he had said these things, he took bread, and giving thanks to God in the presence of all, he broke it and began to eat. Then they all were encouraged and ate some food themselves. We were in all 276 persons in the ship. And when they had eaten enough, they lightened the ship, throwing out the wheat into the sea. Now when it was day, they did not recognize the land, but they noticed a bay with a beach on which they planned, if possible, to run the ship ashore. So they cast off the anchors, and left them in the sea, 
at the same time loosening the ropes that tied the rudder. Then hoisting the foresail to the wind, they made for the beach. But striking a reef, they ran the vessel aground. The bow struck and remained immovable, and the stern was being broken up by the surf. The soldiers' plan was to kill the prisoners, lest any should swim and escape. But the centurion, wishing to save Paul, kept them from carrying out their plan. He ordered those who could swim to jump overboard first and make for the land, and the rest on planks or on the pieces of the ship. And so it was that all were brought safely to land. Let's just go ahead and read through this next session of Acts chapter 28 because it concludes the story of this shipwreck. After we were brought safely through, we then learned that the island was called Malta. The native people showed us unusual kindness, for they kindled a fire and welcomed us all because it had begun to rain and was cold. When Paul had gathered up a bundle of sticks and put them on the fire, a viper came out because of the heat and fastened on his hand. When the native people saw the creature hanging on his hand, they said to one another, No doubt this man is a murderer. Though he has escaped from the sea, justice has not allowed him to live. He, however, shook off the creature into the fire and suffered no harm. They were waiting for him to swell up or suddenly fall down dead. But when they had waited a long time and saw no misfortune come to him, they changed their minds and said that he was a god. Now in the neighborhood of that place were lands belonging to the chief man of the island named Publius, who received us and entertained us hospitably for three days. It happened that the father of Publius lay sick with fever and dysentery. And Paul visited him and prayed, and putting his hands on him, healed him. And when this had taken place, the rest of the people on the island who had diseases also came and were cured. They also honored us greatly, and when we were about to sail, they put on board whatever we needed. So, Paul had been in prison for two years in Caesarea Maritima. No fault had been found in him. He had broken no Roman laws. But he had appealed to Caesar, which was his right as a Roman citizen. And so the governor, Portius Festus, had decided that Paul was going to go to Caesar. And that's where this journey begins. Now they set out, and it's quite clear from the narrative that they set off at a time of the year. We're told it was after the fast, which means that they were heading into the fall. They were heading into the autumn season. It was a very dangerous thing to travel during the fall, during the autumn season, particularly as you're heading into winter. Uh, in those days. It's dangerous to travel sometimes in the sea today, but it was particularly dangerous in those days. We have to remember they had no accurate weather forecasting in those days. Uh, they had no sonar, they had no radars, they had no radio, they had no means of contacting other ships in the event that there was danger. They had no way of knowing what was out. When you set out to sea, uh, you had no idea whatsoever what was facing you. One of the things you have to remember, too, about the Jews, particularly, and Paul, of course, was a Jew, better traveled, perhaps, more well-traveled than others, but the fact is the Jews were not a seafaring people. They were landlubbers for the most part. And if you look at the history of Israel, you'll notice that oftentimes when they were in peril, they were in peril from the sea. If you read the book of Revelation, this is a great shock to those of us who live by the coast and enjoy the water and the waves and time spent at the beach. But in the book of Revelation, we're told when God creates the new heaven and the new earth and everything's going to be perfect, the scripture says the sea shall be no more. The sea shall be no more. 
And I've always said that's very depressing to people who live along the coast, who move here so that you can buy a house near the coast. Well, what is the book of Revelation saying? Well, the book of Revelation is saying that which causes us harm, that which is fearful, that which causes us distress, that will be no more. Now, if you think about the history of, of Israel, the, the sea had not been their friend. When they were delivered from their captivity in Egypt, and they were led to the promised land, we're told that when they left Egypt, they came to the Red Sea. And at this point, what had happened? Well, Pharaoh had changed his mind as to whether or not he was going to let them go. He decided that no. And so we're told he sent his army after them. And so here they are, caught, quite literally, between the devil, the oncoming Pharaoh and his army, and what? The sea, the Red Sea. And it was only by the movement of God's hands that they were delivered from that. Go back even further in biblical history, and you have the story of Noah and the great flood that God brought as a judgment upon the land. And we're told that the whole earth, at least the earth of that time, was flooded. And every living creature, with the exception of Noah and his immediate family, were what? Destroyed. So the sea, you see, for Jews was emblematic of suffering and pain. And they didn't like the sea. They are not like the British, who are an island nation. And so traveling by boat in those days was a dangerous and frightening prospect. And sure enough, they didn't take Paul's advice. He warned them against traveling at this time of the year. We're told they landed at a place called Fair Haven. The only thing that was fair about it was the name. It was a terrible place. And Paul warned them not to proceed with the journey, but they ignored him. And the result, of course, was that they were caught in this terrible, terrible storm. Well, there's much that we could say about this, but I really want us to just think for a moment about storms. It's been said that every single person, every single one of us, is in one of three places in life. You are either in a storm, you've just come out of a storm, or you are heading into a storm. That, that's how human life works, my friends. We're in one of three places. Every single one of us, you are either in the midst of the storm, and some of you may be. You may have been diagnosed with a terrible illness, and you don't know what the future holds. And so you're in the midst of a storm. Or perhaps you have a family member that's going through a painful divorce. Or you're in the midst of some sort of financial distress. But the reality is you are in the midst of a storm, and what the future holds is uncertain for you. For others, you've been in the storm but the skies have started to clear, and you're coming out of the storm. Now, you may be a little battered, like this ship that Paul was sailing on, but at least you can see that it's a smooth sailing, at least for the foreseeable future. And for others, you're beginning to see the storm clouds gather on the horizon. And you're getting the sense that you're heading into a storm. But every single one of us is in one of those three places. And even if you can't see the storm clouds coming, and this is not meant to be a Debbie Downer, but the reality is they are coming. And we know that. The book of Job says, the man is born to trouble as surely as sparks fly upward. And Jesus himself said to his disciples, in this life, you will have tribulation. And I've always pointed out that Jesus didn't say, you may have tribulation, you may have difficulty. He says, you will have it. He is emphatic. This is part and parcel of what it means to be human. Now, we may go through life with relative ease, some of us, but for most people it's not that way. 
There are periods of relative calm, but then there are periods of great pain, great suffering, great hurt, great fear, the storms of life. And I think these storms of life are very analogous to what the Apostle Paul experienced. His was a physical storm, but the reality is it's analogous to the storms that we face in life as well. How many of you have ever experienced a storm in your life? And you know exactly how Paul must have felt, how those people on board that ship must have felt. You really don't know how this thing is going to end. How do we weather the storms of life? That's what I want to concentrate on for the first part of this lecture. I want us to concentrate on how we weather the storms of life. Paul had to weather a storm here. As I said, his was a physical storm. Ours are oftentimes not physical storms, although some of you may have been caught in a storm out at sea. But I'm talking about another kind of storm. How do we weather the storm? Well, I think we weather the storm in the same way that Paul weathered this storm. Now, Paul was caught in this terrible situation, this predicament. He had tried to warn the ship's company that they should not travel, and yet they ignored his warnings, and now they found themselves in this dire situation. And yet Paul, in the midst of this, seems to be the only one that has a sense of peace. He's the only one that seems to have that peace which passes human understanding. You know, oftentimes when people come to me and they ask for prayer, even at the prayer stations at the 5 o'clock service, the 5.30 service, they'll come to me and they'll pray for healing or they'll pray for deliverance, and I'm always happy to pray for deliverance. I'm always happy to pray for healing, and I believe that God can do that. I believe that the same Jesus who came into this world to be our Savior and our Redeemer also came to be the great physician. And wherever he went, the eyes of the blind were opened, the lame leaped for joy, lepers were cleansed, and even dead people were raised. So I certainly believe that God can do that. But I also believe that God is capable of preventing us from getting these things in the first place. So while I'll pray for deliverance, one of the things I always pray for is for peace. Pray for the peace of God which passes human understanding, the peace that the world cannot give. And that's one of the things that's so inspiring about the Apostle Paul in the midst of this terrible plight. Paul has peace. Here he is. He is a prisoner of the Romans. He's a man whose situation, whose very life is forfeit at this point, perhaps. And yet Paul is the one who really rises to the occasion. He is really the one who shows that he has leadership ability. And I think the reason Paul is able to do that I think the reason Paul is able to stand out is because he had that supernatural peace. That was one of the things that was so attractive about Jesus. That was one of the things that even his enemies could not understand, that no matter what was going on around him, Jesus had a sense of tranquility. Do you remember the story when Jesus and the disciples were on the Sea of Galilee? And we're told that a great storm erupted, and the disciples were bailing feverishly, trying to get the water out of the boat. And by the way, storms like that still occur on the Sea of Galilee. Uh, because of the location of the sea, it's surrounded by high mountains on all sides. To the north is Mount Hermon, which is the highest point in that part of the country. And the cold air comes down from Mount Hermon and from the Golan Heights, and it meets with the warm subtropical air rising from the water surface, and the results are oftentimes explosive. In fact, just about 15 years ago, one of these storms erupted, and it sent waves over 10 feet high crashing into the town of Tiberias. 
So they could be very violent storms on the Sea of Galilee. One of these storms erupted. They were in a small craft. There's no motor on those boats, by the way, in those days. These are sailboats. The only power they have is the power of the wind. And when the wind is against you, it can be a very dangerous and frightening thing. And Jesus and his disciples are caught up in one of these violent storms that suddenly erupts at sea. And where is Jesus? He's asleep in the stern, we're told. And the disciples come to him, and they're, they're frustrated. They say, get up, get up. Do you not care that we perish? And Jesus is asleep. He's calm. He has that peace. That's what the Apostle Paul had, and it is a supernatural peace. You, you're not going to find that in the world. When the wind is against you, when the circumstances are against you, where do you find that kind of peace? You find it in the same place that Paul found it. He found it in the one who personifies it and is the author of it and the source of it, Jesus Christ himself. So let's take a look at how it was that Paul weathered this physical storm in the hopes that we might learn from him how we can weather the spiritual, emotional, and perhaps physical storms of life. A number of things that I want you to notice about how Paul prevailed in the storm. First thing was that Paul knew that God was with him. Paul did not know what the future was going to hold. This is my favorite quote from Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Bonhoeffer, as many of you know, was a German pastor living in Germany just before the Second World War. Um, he opposed Adolf Hitler, which was a very dangerous thing to do. Uh, many German pastors, I'm sorry to say, from all denominations, uh, Lutherans, Catholics, etc., they capitulated to the Nazi regime. But there were a group of people, scholars and others, who stood against it. They became the Confessing Church, and one of the leaders of the Confessing Church was this man, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, a brilliant scholar. But Dietrich Bonhoeffer was imprisoned by order of the Fuhrer. And incidentally, he was considered to be so dangerous that he was the last man executed by personal order of Adolf Hitler. Now you think of all the enemies that Hitler had, all of the threats, and, all, and he had a long streak of paranoia. But of all the people, when, he's, when he realizes that the Allies are closing in, that Berlin is about to fall, when he's hunkering down in a bunker and he's thinking about his enemies and the ones that he wants to do away with, the one that he wants to execute is a German pastor, a minister. So that gives you some insight into the kind of man and the kind of influence that Dietrich Bonhoeffer had. But even while he was imprisoned, his captors were just amazed by Bonhoeffer. There was something about this man that they could not understand, they could not comprehend. It's very similar to Paul and Silas when they were imprisoned in Philippi and facing the, the prospect of their own death in the morning, and we find them in their what? Not fearful, but singing praise to God, and the jailer can't understand. He thinks that they're out of their mind until, of course, God delivers them. And then the jailer comes in trembling, falls on his knees, and says, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? You remember the story? That's Dietrich Bonhoeffer. He's got that confidence, that hopefulness. And one of his captors said to him on one occasion, they said, Do you not realize that your life is hanging in the balance? The order for your death could come down at any moment, and yet you seem to have this serenity. What, what is it that you have? And Dietrich Bonhoeffer said this. He said, I do not know what the future holds but well I know who holds the future. 
I think that is exactly true for the Apostle Paul. One of the things that gave Paul great confidence in the midst of this storm, one of the things that gave him that peace which passes human understanding, that serenity that nobody else in the ship's company had was the fact that Paul was absolutely confident that God was with him. Look at chapter 27, verse 23. Paul says, Yet now I urge you to take heart, for there will be no loss of life among you, but only of the ship. For this very night there stood before me an angel of the God whom I belong, to whom I belong, and whom I worship. And he said, Do not be afraid, Paul. You must stand before Caesar. In the midst of life storms, one of the keys to getting through is to remember, in the midst of it all, God is with you. Now, you need to understand something about the Christian life. Jesus never said it was going to be easy. Jesus never said, come follow me, and all of your problems are going to go away. As a matter of fact, Jesus said quite the opposite. He said, if anyone would seek to follow me, he first deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Well, to take up your cross in the first century was an invitation to come and to die. And Jesus is very clear, as I've already said, in this life you will have tribulation. Jesus doesn't say, come follow me and all your problems will go away. What Jesus said is, I will never leave you nor forsake you. That's the Christian hope. That is the Christian promise you see. Not that life is going to be perfect, not that life is going to be easy, but that God is never going to desert us in the midst of life's trials. That's what Jesus said to his disciples. Go into all the world and preach the gospel, and lo, I am with you always. What? Even to the end of the earth. How do you weather the storms of life? Well, one of the first things you must remember that if you are a Christian, you belong to God, and he is with you. He will never leave you. He will never forsake you. He may not make the problem go away, but he promises to be with you in the midst of it. So Paul understood that God was with him. Second thing that he understood was that he belonged to God. That's what he says there in that verse. He said, the God that I serve and to whom I belong. So Paul makes it very clear that he actually belongs to God. He is God's property. That's something to remember when people are afflicting you and people are saying all kinds of derisive things about you because you're a follower of Jesus Christ. One of the things you can say in your prayer is, God, they're messing with your property. And it's true. And Paul remembered that was true. Did you ever notice every time we have a baptism in church, after we baptize the child in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, uh, sometimes we baptize adults as well, but then we do something else. What do we do? We seal them with the oil. And we say these words, you are sealed by the Holy Spirit in baptism and you are marked as Christ's own forever. It's symbolic of the fact that you and I are sealed by the Holy Spirit. The oil is symbolic of that unction, that healing power of the Holy Spirit. And we are sealed by the Holy Spirit. And we are marked as Christ's own forever. That is to say, we belong to Him. One of the things I sometimes say to my children when they go off and do something they shouldn't do and they really blow it, I'll say, listen, you can try to live with your feet in two worlds. You can try to run away from God, but you might as well give up. You're already marked as Christ's own forever. 
As C.S. Lewis said, he is the hound of heaven, and sooner or later he's going to track you down. So run if you will, but sooner or later you might as well give up. Well, that can be a lot rather frightening to a 13-year-old little girl. But to us, it should be a message of great encouragement that God will never let us go. Isn't that what Paul says in Romans? For I am persuaded that neither height nor depth, neither angels nor principalities, neither things present nor things to come, neither anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. We belong to Christ. The church belongs to Christ, and that is why the gates of hell can never prevail against it. And there are all kinds of images in the New Testament used to describe the way that you and I are connected to Christ. The church is described as Christ's bride. Husbands, if you love your wives, you're going to defend your wives, aren't you? You're going to protect your wives. We are the bride of Christ. Do we not think that he will not protect us? We are described as his children. When we say the Lord's Prayer, we say, Our Father, which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. So we are acknowledging the fact that God is our Father. And the word there is Abba. It's not just some sort of father in, 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 in the sense that the Indians used to refer to the President of the United States as the Great White Father, and Queen Victoria was referred to as the Great Mother. No, this is a term of endearment. It's a term of intimacy. It means Daddy. God is our daddy, and he cares for us in the same way that we protect our children and we weep for our children and we worry about our children. And it doesn't really matter how old the children are, is it? doesn't make a difference if they're only little kids. doesn't matter if they're in their 40s. We still what? Fret and worry about them. Why? Because they're our children. Well, we are God's children. We belong to him. We are the sheep of his flock. All we like sheep have gone astray, it's true, but we are still the sheep of his flock, and he is the good shepherd. And what does the good shepherd do? What differentiates the good shepherd from all the other shepherds? The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. For even if the shepherd has 99 in the fold, but one wanders away, he leaves the 99 and he goes off and he looks for what? The one lost. So in the midst of the storms of life, Part of weathering it is remembering these things. You know, it's oftentimes, that's the way it works. The good soldier never forgets his training when the bullets begin to fly. They're trained, they're prepared, but oftentimes what happens is in the crisis, we forget everything that we've been taught. Some years ago when I was at St. Helena's, I had the entire staff do CPR just so we were prepared in the event of an emergency, either in the office or at church on Sunday. And I remember one person saying to me, well, this is great, and I passed the test, but I'm afraid that if somebody falls down in church, I'm going to forget everything that I have learned. And oftentimes that's the case, isn't it? You've been trained, you've been taught, but when the crisis occurs, you forget everything. Part of weathering the storm is remembering these things. Holding fast to what you know to be true in times of peacefulness, but also in times of crisis. Paul was able to do that. In the midst of the storm, he remembered that God was with him. He remembered that he belonged to God. Here's the third thing Paul remembered. That he was in God's service. He said, the God to whom I belong and the God whom I serve. 
Well, if you're a Christian, you see, you have been placed on this earth for a purpose. And if you find yourself in a difficult situation, oftentimes as a consequence of bearing witness to Jesus Christ, you have to remember that that is because you are in Christ's service. And what happened to him will undoubtedly happen to you. But that can be a message of great encouragement because oftentimes what that means is that you're on the right track. There's an old expression that comes out of World War II when the pilots would fly bombing missions. They always knew when they were over the target when they started to catch flak, anti-aircraft fire, flak. Oftentimes in the Christian life, you'll know you're over the target when you start catching flak. If you never catch flak, chances are you're not anywhere near the target. So in times of difficulty, particularly when you're facing difficulty for the sake of the gospel, Take heart, remember that you are in God's service. Here's the last thing that Paul did. Paul trusted God in all the circumstances. He trusted God in all the circumstances. This is one of the reasons why Romans 8.28 is one of my favorite passages of Scripture. For we know that in all things God works together for the good of those who love him and are the called according to his purpose. What does that mean? It means that God is in the redemption business. God is in the business of redeeming our circumstances. Now, I'm going to preach on this in my next sermon. I'm going to preach on the whole subject of suffering because I think many people wrestle with this. What C.S. Lewis has called the problem of pain. And I'm just going to give you a little bit of insight here. I don't want to go into too much of this because we've got a lot of ground to cover today and you're going to have to come and hear the sermon for yourself. But the Bible is really not concerned with why God allows suffering. All right? Suffering is a mystery. Read the book of Job. The Bible is not so much concerned with why God allows suffering as it is with what God is doing in the midst of suffering. In fact, if God were to tell us why he allows suffering to occur in the world, I'm not entirely sure we would understand it. Now, we think we do. But let's be honest. You and I are creatures. God is the creator. We are finite. He is infinite. We are told that his ways are so much higher than our ways as the mountains are higher than the seas. Even if God were to explain to us the mysteries of the universe and what he has planned for our lives and for the life of all humanity in the great scheme of the entire universe, I'm not entirely sure we would understand it or comprehend it. That's why we walk by faith and not by sight. So understand, the Bible is not so much concerned with why God allows suffering. What the Bible is concerned with is what God is doing in the midst of it. And what Romans 8.28 says is that God is using it. He is redeeming it. Here's something else to keep in mind. Everybody suffers. That is, if you're a part of the human race, you are going to suffer. It's just a fact. And if you're not suffering right now, as I said, if you're not in the storm now, you will be. Sooner or later, we all face the storm of what? Our own mortality. Nobody lives forever on this earth. So just be aware of that. But while we all suffer, here's the good news. Christians suffer for a purpose. All human beings suffer, but because we belong to God and he uses all things for our good, the Christian suffers for a purpose. The non-Christian suffers for no purpose. So that is a message of encouragement to us all. 
There's a wonderful prayer in the Book of Common Prayer, appropriate because it's for Good Friday. Listen to it. O God of unchangeable power and eternal light, look favorably on your whole church, that wonderful and sacred mystery. By the effectual working of your providence, carry out in tranquility the plan of salvation. Let the whole world see and know that things which were cast down are being raised up, things which had grown old are being made new, and that all things are being brought to their perfection by him through whom all things were made, your Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. So we may be in the midst of a world in which things are being cast down, but God is in the business of redeeming them. He takes the shameful things, the despised things, the things that are not to bring to naught the things that are. Things that are growing old. How many of you can relate to that? In God's own time, they are being made new. And all things, all things are being brought to their perfection by him through whom all things were made. So in the midst of life's storms, let's remember that God is with us. Let's remember that we belong to God. Let's remember that we are in His service. And let's trust Him in all the circumstances, knowing that while we all suffer, the Christian suffers for a purpose. It is the means by which God, more than any other way, transforms us evermore into the image of Jesus Christ. How many of you have ever prayed, Lord, make me like Jesus? How many of you would like to be Christ-like? Well, what did Christ endure? Sufferings the likes of which the world has never understood. To be honed, to be shaped, to be transformed into the image of Christ is an extremely painful prospect. The outcome, the result, is glory. But the process can be difficult. Well, it was the fact that Paul was able to remember all of these things that while he may have been shocked by the storm, he was not surprised by the storm. And as a result, he was able to be a leader in the time of crisis. And if we remember these things, we will, when we look at our world and all that is happening, when we look at the church and everything that is happening in it, if we can remember these things, if we can remember that we do not know what the future holds, but we know who holds the future, we too can rise up and be an example to those around us. And it's oftentimes in that context that people are attracted to us because they say, you have something that I don't have, and whatever it is, I want it. And we're able then to what? Bear witness to him who is the source of all peace. A couple of final thoughts. Always remember that Christ can calm the storm. Whatever you're in, Christ can calm the storm. He can speak to the, the storm in your life in the same way that he spoke to that storm on the Sea of Galilee, peace be still. And I, I love that story because I think we have this sort of image of Jesus standing up there on the boat and saying, peace, be still. But the text says he rebuked the wind and the waves. What does it mean to rebuke somebody? It means to yell at them, to shout at them, peace, be still. Trying to get some rest around here. This is what you do when it gets crazy at your house. Hey, I'm trying to get a nap. That's what Jesus said to the wind and the waves. And I want you to understand he can speak that kind of authority into the life. A 
of a person in the midst of a storm. So bear that in mind, that storms will come, but Christ is fully capable of calming the storm. However, this is the flip side, Christ is also fully capable of causing the storm in your life. And so the challenge is to ask yourself, not why, why is this happening to me, Lord, but what would you seek to teach me in this, O Lord? Yes, Jesus calmed the waves on the Sea of Galilee, but we're told that it was God who sent the storm into Jonah's life. So you need to understand that some suffering can be constructive, building us up into the image of Christ, but some suffering can be corrective. God can send it into our lives because we're on the wrong path and there's no other way to get us. C.S. Lewis talked about this a great deal. He said, God whispers to us in our pleasures. God shouts to us in our pain. Suffering is God's megaphone to rouse a sleeping world. So God can cause the storm, so don't ask yourself, why is this happening to me? That's the first question we want to ask, isn't it? But Lord, what would you seek to teach me in the midst of this? Remember this, Christ can rise above the storm, and he can help you walk upon the storm. Isn't that what he did with Peter? Lord, if it's you, tell me to come to you. And Peter got out of the boat, and he began to walk toward Jesus. I love that story. Now, did Peter make it the whole way to Jesus? What happened to him? He sank beneath the waves. Why? It wasn't that he didn't have faith. He took his eyes off of the Lord, didn't he? We're told when he saw the wind and the waves, he began to sink. See, that's the way it is. Oftentimes, when we're caught in the midst of the storm, we don't look on the one, we don't keep our eyes fixed on the one who is capable of walking on the water, who is capable of calming the storms, who is capable of rebuking the wind and the waves. What we do is we look at the wind and the waves, and that's where our attention is focused. That's where we concentrate our energy. And the result is that we sink beneath it. Well, remember that Christ is capable of walking on the storm. And never forget, he is the Lord of the storm. And because he is the Lord of all things, we need not fear the storm. One of the most moving experiences I've ever had in my life was years ago when I was in seminary. I went to Annapolis, Maryland to tour the Naval Academy. And I walked into the chapel there, and there's this magnificent stained glass Tiffany window that stands above the, or sits above the high altar. And the Naval Academy choir was in there practicing. And I was walking down that center aisle to Magnificent Chapel, and I saw that image, and it shows Jesus walking on the water, and I heard the choir singing the Navy hymn, Eternal Father, strong to save, whose arm hath bound the restless wave, who bids the mighty ocean deep its own appointed limits keep. Oh, hear us when we cry to thee, for those in peril on the sea. Whatever your storm, if you're in a storm, if you've just come out of a storm, or if you know you're heading into a storm, remember these things. And by God's grace, you will weather the storm. By God's grace, you will rise above it. And even if it's the storm of your own mortality, 
All you need to do is cry out to Peter, Lord, save me, and he will take you by the hand, and your fragile ship will make it safely to shore. That's the way you weather the storms of life, and it's the way that Paul weathered the storm. So turn to Acts chapter 28, as Paul now comes to the close of his journey. Acts chapter 28, beginning at verse 11. And after three months, we set sail in a ship that had wintered in the island, a ship of Alexandria with the twin gods as a figurehead. And putting in at Syracuse, we stayed there for three days. And from there, we made a circuit and arrived at Regium. And after one day, a south wind sprang up. And on the second day, we came to Pichulio, ah, whatever it is, you can read it. Puccioli. And there we found brothers and were invited to stay with them for seven days. And so, here it is, verse 14, we came to Rome. So after this storm, Paul is rescued ultimately, and he arrives at Rome. He arrives at Rome, which is a place that Paul had anticipated visiting for some time. Now, of course, before Paul gets to Rome, the first part of Acts chapter 28 is after the shipwreck, they arrive on the island of Malta. I don't want to say a whole lot about Malta. There's a great deal to talk about here, but I simply want to point out to you this whole issue of false assumptions. I think it's important for us as human beings because we oftentimes jump to false assumptions, don't we? We oftentimes don't have the whole picture. That's exactly what happened here. We're told that when they were shipwrecked on the island, the islanders built a fire for them. Shipwrecks, of course, were probably not uncommon on Malta. And so they built this fire and they began to rescue uh, the prisoners as they made their way into the shore and the ship's company. And Paul, uh, again, a leader, and Paul was a man of action. Paul was not one to sit by idly. Uh, Paul goes out and he begins to gather all this firewood to help the islanders and to save the other people. And we're told that when he did this, uh, he picked up a venomous snake, a viper of some sort. And uh, it was cold and the viper had become stiff, but when it got close to the fire, it warmed itself and revived. You know that snakes do that sort of thing. Um, Lawrence of Arabia, T.E. Lawrence, tells a similar story, um, being out in the desert on one occasion, and he said they built a fire, and uh, sure enough, they picked up sticks and they picked up a snake. And when it became warm by the fire, the snake revived and it slithered through the company. On that occasion, it didn't bite anybody, but on this occasion, and this is the sort of thing that just is the source of nightmares for me. I hate snakes. I absolutely despise them. I'm one of those that believes the only good snake is a dead snake. I know that's not true, but that's the way I feel about it. And this venomous snake, this viper, came and attached itself to Paul. And uh, Paul simply shook it off into the fire, and that was the end of it. But the islanders knew that the snake was venomous. They knew that it was dangerous, and you died from being bit by this particular snake. And so they sat around and waited for Paul to swell up and to fall over dead, and he never did. Now, when it first happened, what's interesting is the false assumption that they jumped to. And the false assumption was what? He escaped the ship and the storm, but justice has finally found him out. Ah, you see, uh, the fates have caught up with Paul, and now he's going to suffer the wrath. And, of course, that never happened. 
And so one minute, Paul is a great murderer, they say, but when they realize that he didn't blow up and that he didn't fall over dead, they change their tune, and Paul, who had been a murderer a moment before, became a what? A god. That's the way it is. It teaches us that human beings are very fickle creatures. Same crowd that shouted when Jesus rode into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday, Hosanna in the highest, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, save us now, were the same people that just a few days later shouted, crucify him, crucify him. Human beings, you must realize, are very fickle creatures. We are. And we easily change our tune. And we easily jump to the wrong conclusion. And I only bring this up and emphasize it because oftentimes when storms come into our lives, when trouble comes into our life, we assume that either we have done something wrong or we're being punished, or somebody else has done something wrong and is being punished. Isn't that the way it is? Now, sometimes, as I said, suffering can be corrective, but sometimes suffering and difficulty are going to come into your life simply because you're a part of the human race. And there's no escaping that. The story is told in John chapter 9 that when Jesus and his disciples were walking along, one day they came upon a blind man who had been blind for 30-some years. And the first question out of the disciples' mouth was, Who sinned? This man or his parents that he was born this way. In other words, when bad things happen to people, it's because they're bad people or they've done bad things. And this must be divine retribution. And do you remember what Jesus replied? How Jesus replied? What was his response? He said, neither this man nor his parents sinned that he was born blind. No, this has happened so that what? God may be glorified. Now, somebody might say, well, I take offense at that. You mean to tell me that this poor fellow was born? You mean to tell me the scriptures teach me this poor fellow was born blind just so 30-some years later Jesus could come along and heal him and get the glory? Yes, that's exactly what the scripture is teaching. Because here's the problem. You and I concentrate on the 34 years. God concentrates on eternity. And in the whole vast scheme of eternity, 34 years is what? Nothing. And we have a tendency to think that it's all about us. But it's not all about us. It's all about what? It's all about God. And that's why I said the question is not, why is this happening to me? That was the wrong question. The question is, Lord, what would you seek to teach us in the midst of this? So when you see somebody that's afflicted or suffering or going through a difficult time, we should never stop and say, well, they probably deserve it. They've done this to themselves. If that were the case, my friends, you and I would never have a Savior because the truth be known, we have done it to ourselves. And yet God is what? Rich in mercy. Rich in compassion and has favor on us. It's called grace. Well, Paul arrives at last in Rome. This is where this story has been heading all along. If you go back to Acts chapter 1, two years ago, we started off in a completely different space two years ago in the parlor. But in Acts chapter 1, we have this version of the Great Commission in which Jesus says to his disciples, It's not for you to know the times nor the seasons. But the power of the Holy Spirit will come upon you, and you will be my witnesses 
in Jerusalem, in Judea and Samaria, and finally what? To the ends of the earth. And that is exactly how the book of Acts unfolded. Pentecost occurred, the Holy Spirit did come upon the apostles, and they did bear witness, first in Jerusalem, that is in their own neighborhood. Peter stood up and delivered that magnificent sermon in which 3,000 people were converted to the faith. But then the gospel went out from there. It went to Judea and Samaria. We had Philip and the Ethiopian eunuch. We had Saul going out to destroy the church in Damascus and God stopping him along the way. And so the gospel spread from Jerusalem, even by means, incidentally, of suffering. Remember, Stephen was martyred there, and as a result of the suffering and the martyrdom of Stephen, we're told the church was scattered. They tried to stamp out the fire of the gospel, and the only thing they succeeded in doing was spreading it. And by means of that terrible storm, by means of that martyrdom of Stephen, the church was scattered. But wherever those Christians went, when they left Jerusalem, they took the gospel with them. And so it spread to Judea, to the south, to Samaria, to the north. And here is Paul at the very end of the book where, in the imperial capital itself, from where the gospel will go out to the very end of the earth. This had been Paul's desire in Acts chapter 19, verse 21, one of the things that he had said as he said farewell to the Ephesian elders was that he had to go to Rome. And when Paul was arrested in Jerusalem and it looked as though there was an assassination plot to take his life, one of the things that he said was that God had spoken to him and Jesus had assured him that he had to go to Rome. And so he did. And here he is at the very end. At the time of the Blitz in England, in 1940, one of the things that Winston Churchill had said to the people was he said, this is not the end. He said, it's not even the beginning of the end. But he added, it may be the end of the beginning. As we come to Acts chapter 28, this last chapter of the book, I don't want you to think that this is the end. This is not even the beginning of the end, but it is the end of the beginning. Paul passes from the scene, but the story of Christianity has continued to go on. You and I are a part of that story even today. What happened to Paul? Well, this book ends in a rather odd way. It ends with Paul imprisoned in Rome. Luke doesn't tell us what happened to Paul. And it may be that at the time that he concluded this story, this portion of the narrative, he didn't know what was going to happen to Paul. Uh, other scholars have suggested that Paul was imprisoned in Rome for two years. He was under house arrest, but because there were no charges actually preferred against him, he was released and he went on to some other places. There are strong indicators that he did go back to Crete. There are other indicators that he went on to Spain. But Eusebius, one of the early Christian historians, says that at one point, sometime around the year 64 AD, Paul went back to Rome. You know what happened in the year 64 AD? Those of you who are ancient historians, something happened. The Great Fire. Rome burned. And as a consequence of that, Nero made the Christians the scapegoat for that fire. And a great persecution erupted against the Christians. And Eusebius suggests that the Apostle Paul, hearing about this, 
went back to strengthen the church, and because he was a ringleader, he was arrested. This was the second imprisonment of Paul in Rome, and from that imprisonment, he did not escape. Instead, he was taken out along the Ostian Way, one of the major thoroughfares leading into Rome, and there Paul was martyred, and indeed he was. He was beheaded. He was not crucified, which was the normal punishment for those who were guilty of crimes against the empire. That's why Jesus was crucified, because he claimed to be a king, and there was no king but Caesar. That's why Peter was crucified, incidentally, for going out and proclaiming that Jesus was Lord. Peter, as you know, was crucified upside down. Paul was not crucified, and the only reason for that was because Paul was a Roman citizen, and that kind of punishment was considered to be um, not suitable for a Roman citizen. Instead, Paul was beheaded. But his life was forfeit for the sake of Christ. But as I said, it may be the end of the story of Paul. It's not the end of the story. <laughs> it may be the end of the beginning, but it's by no means the beginning of the end because you and I are the heirs of this great tradition. You and I are sitting here today 2,000 years later as a consequence of what Peter and Paul and others did. And that can be a great encouragement to us. Some final thoughts before we wrap it up. One of the things I want you to notice as we come here to Acts chapter 28 is that Paul is able to preach the gospel. In fact, the book of Acts ends with these words. And Paul lived there two whole years at his own expense and welcomed all who came to him, proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. Here we are, 26 chapters later, and Paul is preaching the same gospel that was preached in Acts chapter 2 on Pentecost. That's the first thing I want you to understand. It is the same gospel. It's a different city. When Peter preached at the beginning of the book of Acts, they preached in Jerusalem, didn't he? Paul is now in a very different kind of city. He's preaching in Rome, the imperial capital. They were a different audience back in Jerusalem, predominantly Jews. It's a very different audience in Rome. It's a mixture of Jews and Gentiles. It's a different time. It had been decades, decades before that Peter had preached there in Jerusalem. It's decades later and Paul is preaching in Rome. But what you notice is that it is the same gospel. That is unchanged. And if you and I are the continuation of Paul's story, we need to remember that it's the same gospel today. Now, the world would try to persuade us that we need to tweak it a little bit because times have changed. Paul didn't believe that. They may say, well, you're dealing with a different audience. That may be true, but so was Paul. It is the same gospel. And do you know why it's the same gospel? Because it's the same problem. Circumstances may have changed, but let me tell you something. Human nature has not changed a whit since the Apostle Paul walked this earth. We are still sinners in desperate need of a Savior. We are sinners in desperate need of rescuing. And what the world needs now is the same gospel that was proclaimed then. In fact, if the world has become anything, it's become worse than it was in Paul's day. Not because people are any more sinful today than they were in Paul's day, but simply because the opportunities for sin are so much greater these days. And you know, it's true. 
I mean, one of the reasons we have so many opportunities for sin is because of this little device. It's called a cell phone, isn't it? I mean, I hate to admit this, but you know, when you were a teenage boy, little boys, you know, are intrigued by naked women. I mean, that's just the way it was. And little boys, I remember. I never did it, but I, other boys may have done it, you know. And the, if you wanted to see a picture of a naked woman, what did you have to do? Well, you had to go find National Geographic. <laughs> or you went into a store and you, you hit a magazine behind Sports Illustrated. Nobody has to do that anymore, is it? The scripture says, beware of the evil day. You know what the evil day is? The evil day is when your inclination and your opportunity meet. There are times in our lives when we have a desire to sin, but not the opportunity to do so. There are other times when we have the opportunity to sin, but not the inclination or the desire. The evil day is when the opportunity and the desire meet. And unfortunately, when the desire rears its ugly head, the opportunities in this day of technology are manifold. So it's not that people are any worse than they were when Paul walked the earth, it's just that the opportunities to sin are so much greater these days than they were in Paul's day. And so if there's any a time in all of history where the gospel, the pure gospel is needed, it is today. The same gospel same gospel and the same results. Earlier in this book of Acts, we saw wherever Paul went and wherever he preached, wherever Peter went, wherever he preached, there were some who embraced the gospel message. There were some who rejected the gospel message. And on the part of those who rejected the gospel message, oftentimes there was persecution against those who proclaimed it. Let me tell you something, you can expect exactly the same thing in 21st century America today. If you are going to share the gospel, if you are going to live a Christian life, you are going to find that some people will embrace the gospel and give thanks for it and their lives will be changed. Others will take offense at the gospel and the message of the scripture and they will turn against it. And those who sometimes turn against it will stir up trouble for you. Here's the third thing to remember. It doesn't make any difference. We still have the same task. Jesus' words to his disciples are the same words to us. Go into all the world and preach the gospel, making disciples of all men, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost. And lo, I will be with you always even to the end of the earth. David Kim, who's a professor of missiology at Concordia Theological Seminary and Concordia University, put it well. He said, every heart without Christ is a mission field, and every heart with Christ is a missionary by vocation. Acts is the story of the early church, my friends, but Acts is also a blueprint for ministry today. This is not the end of the story. It's the end of the beginning of the story. And now Paul passes from the stage, and you and I have a part to play. God grant that we might play our part as well 
as he played his. Let us pray. Gracious God, our Heavenly Father, we give you thanks for this study of the book of Acts, for the inspiration that it provides for us in terms of the life of the great apostles, Peter and Paul. We thank you, Lord, that this is a story that does not conclude at the end of this book, but a story that goes on, a story that we have a part in. Grant us the grace, the courage to step up to the plate, to do our part. When the storms of life come, Lord, grant us the grace to remember that we belong to you, that you are with us. You'll never leave us nor forsake us. Grant us the grace to place our faith, our confidence in the one who walks upon the water and who calms the waves and who sleeps silently in the hull of the ship when the storm is raging. And give us courage, Lord, like Peter and Paul, to go out. And in the midst of life's storms and in the midst of the calm periods, to bear witness to the one who is the Lord of heaven and earth. Grant us the grace to do this, that the gospel may spread from Jerusalem here in Charleston to Judea and Samaria to Charleston in the United States and finally to the ends of the earth that all may own Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. For it is in his name that we pray. Amen. Okay. Thank you. We'll see you in the fall, if not before. <laughs>